Hello, my name is Thurman O'Herlihy, and this is That Place Below Mexico, a podcast about Central America's hidden past, misunderstood present, and precarious future. I chose that title not because I think that Central America is just some cluster of nations to the south of Mexico, but because that is the pervasive impression that the U.S. holds of that place. In fact, I pulled the line straight from Ronald Reagan in his 1983 address to Congress on the importance of U.S. hegemony in the region. This podcast is my senior project for my bachelor's degree in cultural and regional studies at Prescott College. I chose this topic because I think many average U.S. citizens have a severe lack of awareness when it comes to the history and current affairs of Central America. I especially believe that many Norte Americanos do not know enough about the U.S.'s role in the region when it comes to interventions, economic policy, and our massive overall influence. To get things started, I'm actually going to play that aforementioned clip of Ronald Reagan in his address to Congress in 1983. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, distinguished members of the Congress, honored guests, and my fellow Americans. A number of times in past years, members of Congress and a president have come together in meetings like this to resolve a crisis. I have asked for this meeting in the hope that we can prevent one. It would be hard to find many Americans who aren't aware of our stake in the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, or the NATO line dividing the free world from the communist bloc. And the same could be said for Asia. But in spite of, or maybe because of, a flurry of stories about places like Nicaragua and El Salvador, and yes, some concerted propaganda, many of us find it hard to believe we have a stake in problems involving those countries. Too many have thought of Central America as just that place way down below Mexico that can't possibly constitute a threat to our well-being. And that's why I've asked for this session. Central America's problems do directly affect the security and the well-being of our own people. And Central America is much closer to the United States than many of the world trouble spots that concern us. So we work to restore our own economy. We cannot afford to lose sight of our neighbors to the south. El Salvador is nearer to Texas than Texas is to Massachusetts. Nicaragua is just as close to Miami, San Antonio, San Diego, and Tucson as those cities are to Washington, where we're gathered tonight. But nearness on the map doesn't even begin to tell the strategic importance of Central America, bordering as it does in the Caribbean, our lifeline to the outside world. Two-thirds of all our foreign trade and petroleum pass through the Panama Canal and the Caribbean. Just a quick side note, this actually remains true to this day, um, with about $270 billion worth of cargo passing through Panama each year. In a European crisis, at least half of our supplies for NATO would go through these areas by sea. Now, I'm obviously not making this podcast to talk about Ukraine, but, um, you know, when you hear about NATO, just keep this speech by Reagan in mind. It's well to remember that in early 1942, a handful of Hitler's submarines sank more tonnage there than in all of the Atlantic Ocean. And they did this without a single naval base anywhere in the area. And today the situation is different. Cuba is host to a Soviet combat brigade. 
a submarine base capable of servicing Soviet submarines and military air bases visited regularly by Soviet military aircraft. Because of its importance, the Caribbean Basin is a magnet for adventurism. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term adventurism, it, it's a general term that means the willingness to take risks in business or politics, especially in the context of foreign policy, actions, tactics, or attitudes regarded as daring or reckless, which I think is just really ironic coming from Reagan, especially if you know anything about Iran-Contra or any of the other stuff that he was doing in Central America at this very time. We're all aware of the Libyan cargo planes refueling in Brazil a few days ago on their way to deliver medical supplies to Nicaragua. Brazilian authorities discovered the so-called medical supplies were actually munitions and prevented their delivery. This is another one of those things that I think just needs a little bit more context. Reagan at the time was doing the exact same thing in terms of disguising military shipments as medical supplies, school supplies, so his criticism of Libya doing the same thing really doesn't hold much ground when you know, his administration was pushing for those same kinds of uh, tactics. So, You may remember that last month, speaking on national television, I showed an aerial photo of an airfield being built in the island of Grenada. But if that airfield had been completed, those planes could have refueled there and completed their journey. If the Nazis during World War II and the Soviets today could recognize the Caribbean and Central America as vital to our interest. So this is the second time Reagan has invoked Nazis during World War II. Odd, considering the reality of what was going on there having really nothing to do with World War II. But that was a common tactic during the Cold War was, you know, comparing Soviets Soviet affiliates or completely unaffiliated, but, you know, relatively left-wing governments as akin to the Nazis. Shouldn't we also? For several years now, under two administrations, the United States has been increasing its defense of freedom in the Caribbean Basin. And I can tell you tonight, democracy is beginning to take root in El Salvador, which until a short time ago knew only dictatorship. The new government is now delivering on... I just wanted to play that clip so you could have an idea of what important political figures like Ronald Reagan had to say about the region. Things like Central America is closer to many places in the United States than they are relationally to other places in our country, like Washington, D.C. It's very specific language. And I think it points to the fact that Central America is really only important to our politicians so long as it affects our so-called vital interests, namely, of course, natural resources, strategic military positioning, and uh, you know the big one, anti-communism, especially during the Cold War. And of course, since long before Ronald Reagan, the United States' relationship to Central America has been informed by an attitude of domination, militarism, economic superiority, and a sort of demeaning paternalism. You know, we are the father of this region. And at the end there, did you catch the phraseology Reagan was using? Didn't it sound familiar? The importance of maintaining freedom and democracy in a place that we have no jurisdiction over 
may sound to you like the fateful moments leading up to the devastating wars in the Middle East. And that is no coincidence. All right, I may have gotten ahead of myself. So for the purposes of this podcast, let's just talk about what Central America is. It's a region in what's known as the Americas. So it's that's something that I'm going to try to avoid is calling myself and other people from the United States Americans because Americans are Canadians, they're Mexicans, they're Central Americans, they're Brazilians, they're Chileans. Americas, the Americas are vast. It covers North, South, and Central America. Bordered by Mexico to the North, Colombia to the South, uh, the Caribbean Sea to the East, and the Pacific Ocean to the West. Central America consists of seven countries, Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Panama. For this podcast, I'm pretty much just going to focus on El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and a little bit of Nicaragua. In more recent years, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador have become to be referenced as the Northern Triangle by the military apparatus of the West, economists, people like that. This term is used to highlight this region or collection of countries as a problem spot when it comes to the U.S.'s ability to change the region through intervention or economic policy. And I think a lot of people frown on the term, especially from Central America, or, you know, from these countries, because it centers the issues there as what that place is, you know, dictatorships, conflict, things like that. So I will, I'm going to refrain from using the term, but that is uh, a common term that you'll see. As for demographics, Guatemala is the largest of the countries that I'm going to focus on with 17 million people in 2018. The ethnic demographics of Guatemala are 56% Ladino slash Mestizo, 41.6% Maya, which is the most significant indigenous population out of the three countries, 1.7% Xinca, 0.19% Afro-Guatemalan, 0.13% Garifuna, and 0.24% Form. As for religious demographics in Guatemala, it's 88% Christian, with 45% being Roman Catholic and 42% being Protestant, which is actually a pretty big change. There used to, it used to be a much more Catholic country. As the smallest out of the three countries, El Salvador is also the most densely populated, and it has a population of 6.83 million. Ethnically, El Salvador is 86.3% mestizo, mixed white slash an indigenous, 12.7% white, 0.2% indigenous, um, but this number has been called into question many times by indigenous activists in the region. Many people believe that that number is actually a lot higher. As for religion, it's 84% Christian, with 44.9% being Roman Catholic, 37.1% being Protestant, and 2.1% being other Christians. Finally, Honduras has a population of 9.587 million. Officially, according to their government, they're 90% mestizo, again, that's mixed indigenous and white, 7% indigenous, 2% black, and 1% white. These numbers, like El Salvador, have been called into question. Suffice it to say, indigenous people, whether mixed mestizo or officially recognized tribal indigenous people, they make up a huge part of Central America, and they also make up a huge part of the persecution that happened during the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s during the armed internal conflicts in those countries. A lot of times, as a Westerner, when you learn about 
the archaeology and the anthropology of Central America, you'll learn about the Mayan Empire and how it crumbled at one point in history, maybe due to a drought. There's multiple theories, but the overall kind of theme is that they disappeared. That is far from true. Um, there was a reorganization, certainly. They're not organized under a confederated empire anymore, but all of the Maya still exist. They exist as the Mam, Quiche, Ishil, Kekchi, and many, many others. Many of these indigenous people, especially from Guatemala, don't even speak Spanish, let alone English, which brings me to the issue of immigration into the United States. As I was saying earlier, the indigenous people in these countries are some of the most persecuted, and as such, they make up a large portion of the migrants who are coming to the United States border. And when they get here, they usually don't receive the sort of legal representation that many migrants are privy to just due to the fact that there aren't people who can speak their languages to help them through this system. As for immigration as a whole, over the last few decades, several million Central American migrants have sought opportunity, refuge, and stability in the United States, driven by factors including battered economies, violence, corrupted governments, and the desire to reunite with relatives who had already immigrated earlier or to find a family-sustaining job. While media attention in recent years has focused on the arrival of unaccompanied minors and families, primarily from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, um, most of the 3.8 million Central American migrants in the United States as of 2019 have been in the country for at least a decade. Displacement and economic instability caused by regional civil wars in which the United States government had heavy involvement led many Central Americans to migrate in the 1980s. The wars ended, but economic instability remained, as did migration. The Central American immigrant population in the United States more than tripled between 1980 and 1990. Hurricane Mitch in 1998 and two earthquakes in 2001 were among the factors that further drove migration from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Similar factors have remained at work in recent years. In November 2020, hurricanes Eta and Iota devastated the region, affecting as many as 11 million people throughout Central America. Drought has also plagued parts of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras in what is now known as the Dry Corridor. Further, government corruption, gang activity, and high homicide rates continue to affect parts of the region driving immigration. The total Central American-born population in the United States has grown more than tenfold since 1980 and by 24% since 2010. The 3.8 million Central American migrants present in 2019 accounted for 8% of the U.S. foreign-born population of 44.9 million. And that concludes the first episode of this podcast. In the next three episodes, I'm going to talk about the post-colonial period or neo-colonial period from the turn of the century to around the mid-century. Then I'm going to talk about the later Cold War period and the armed internal conflicts. And then in the final episode, I'm going to transition into the contemporary. Music credits for the opening theme of this podcast go to Surf OHI from the Pixabay.com royalty-free music database. References and citations will be available from a link in the podcast description. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode.